Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two people compulsively learn history and then once a week come together and regurgitate the parts of history that we have just learned and we act like it is both the most amazing thing that we've ever heard and pretend that the other one has probably never heard it before. I'd say that's close. I mean... Look, we've been doing this for a year. We might somehow have the intro worked out. Yeah, come on now. I mean, <laughs> I'm Angie. <laughs> oh, I'm Teresa. No, speaking of having the intro, the intro worked, worked out, out. Yeah. Um, yeah, we so tried. here's here's to another year of trying to figure out just the intro. <laughs> well, you know, at least we know when to give our sources now, right? Like we're winning there. Yeah, we start. We have our sources at the top, so you can decide if our sources are even worth listening to the story. It's like, you know what? I can only listen to so much bathroom graffiti. Or what if that's the only source you want? Okay, yeah. So if you are an Angie fan and you are here just to read the writings on bathroom walls, tune in to the episode She Goes First. Okay, here's the thing. One time I said my source is a Reddit post. And I have because, never let you live it down. Because there are almost no other sources in existence. And you know what? It's okay. We all have we all have the thing that we're gonna be remembered for. Mine is bathroom wall source posts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it could have been worse. It could we, have been we could have found your history on the bathroom wall. And that's what you could have been remembered for. That would have actually been awesome. Wait, no, my history or my yeah. story? I don't know your my history. history on the bathroom yeah. wall. Okay. No, I, as soon as you said that, I was like, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know which bathroom walls you've been reading, but apparently I need to upgrade my bathrooms. My bathroom wall says mermaid at heart. So Okay. Okay. Well, um, Hmm. I'm in a hard transition this one. <laughs> I think who went first last time? Oh. I think that was me. I went first last time because I told the story of the lowlife crew. Yes, you did go first last time. But I think it's your Because I spent my entire story thinking about Ralph Lauren. Yeah, this checks. <laughs> These are things. And I will have you know um, that since I told that story... Facebook Marketplace is showing me vintage polo gear. And I'm like, I don't need a $2,000 poncho that's 30 years old. Are you I'm, sure? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Uh, its main color is cream. And that is disaster for somebody like me who drinks their coffee black and is a klutz. I'm going to let you have that one. But I feel like Facebook Marketplace is doing you right by giving you items you specifically did search for and not go crazy with it. You know? Fair. Fair. At least way, you're not trying to order mail order brides. Is that what you're going to tell me about? No. That just is the thing that ends up in my email all the time. And I have no idea what I looked at once to get that. Should I not have signed you up for those websites? Oh, so it was you. Well, here's the thing. Um, Takesha can, uh, she's from Slovakia and she can cook. And so I'm considering an international marriage. You know, okay. So there was, when I taught English in Japan, there was a, I taught all kinds of levels and ages. One of my students was a, I had a class of retired women. Well, I should say old housewives. And one said that she goes, yeah, my husband just retired. And I was like, oh, congratulations. And she goes, mm, no, no, um, because my work has increased. And it makes me really wonder when I get to retire. And then she stopped and went, I want a wife. I'd like a wife. And just <laughs> that... The way she said it, as wistfully as she's like, I just want somebody to do all my housework. I I think about that all the time. Uh, yeah, we're not even in the retired phase, and I wish I had a wife. Like, I'll, I'll financially keep you. I just need you to keep my house. That's all I'm asking, man. Full we could even have, me. we could even have, we would have a loveless marriage. It'd be fine. It'd be, yeah, it'd be fine. 
You could have your American citizenship and I get my socks folded for me. This is a great partnership. Right? Yeah, it'd be, it'd so be if and then, you, you know, have you an application can... that is at no I'm joking I'm joking I'm joking <laughs> I'm not I want someone else to fold my socks okay well <laughs> all right hey I'll hard pivot do you want to hear my story yeah hard pivot okay um let me let me make my screen just a hair bigger so I can read this slightly better Okay, so do you remember the other week when you talked about the pyramids of Sudan? Yes. Okay, so you mentioned warrior queens, and my brain literally lost it. I, I felt like I needed all the information right then, and you just kept smiling and going on, and I was like, but, but madam. <laughs> I love go my back. life right now. Do you? I because like I didn't fixate just there like and to know that you fixated on a small aspect and I went oh yes this go girl <laughs> yeah so that this this story is your fault <laughs> and um, honestly like I thought it would be a really fun way to celebrate not only how powerful black history month is but also powerful women as well and given that so i i'm taking this the story the idea of the story from the perspective that we culturally are at, in this time right the time of the pyramids in both the sudan and egypt there were more middle eastern and more and an equal amount of black heritage so i'm using that as my jumping point because at the end of the day the people from this area of the world today are of african black descent so it made sense to me that this woman and these other women would have been as well yeah no i'm now, with granted, you i mean you know that's why we call the whole p period of time that sudan ruled egypt as the, the time of the black emperors or black pharaohs Right. So in my in my brain, that was immediately like, OK, well, we're working with artwork that doesn't exactly specify color, but at the same time. It makes sense. And at the at the end of the day, they're powerful women and a powerful woman is a powerful woman. So her story deserves to be told. Regardless of color, but to be celebrated for it as well. Does that make sense? I'm with you. OK, so. <clears throat> My sources are a really short YouTube video from a series called On the Shoulders of Giants, The Candaces of Kush, Nubian War Queens and Warriors, The Kantiki, Kantakis. I knew I was going to jack that up the first time I said it. It's all right. I Mighty mean, look, Women of Africa. We we need we each need a word that we can future episodes from now be like, look how how flawlessly I nail this. Now I blew it in episode 57, but I can nail it every time now. You know, it's funny as I was saying to my saying it to myself over and over today, I was saying it right because I phonetically spelled it. And then the minute I read it in the correct spelling, I butchered it. You know what? So yay me. What we're here for, you know, like this this podcast does nothing <laughs> but teach us humility. Yes, it does. Amarinius, the brave one-eyed African queen who led an army against the Romans. Already love her. That is from, right? That's from Face to Face Africa by Elizabeth Ofsu Johnson. It's an article dated um, in July of 2018. World History Encyclopedia, the Kush Timeline. Fierce Rulers of Kush, History of Royal Women. And then a Rejected Princess's article about Amarinius, the one-eyed warrior queen who fought Rome tooth and nail. I love the Rejected Princesses website just because it's so fun to see how she puts her artwork versus the stories together. And that was really the reason I looked that up. <laughs> and then there's a Medium article, The African Kingdom That Took On Rome and Won. And History.com, The Nubian Queen Who Fought Back Caesar's Army. I have a couple of more, but that's the bulk of them. So, all that to say... 
I had questions. When you said to me there was warrior queens, like not just one, but like multiple, I I needed to know what they looked like, what their names were, what their lives were like. And so I immediately looked up the term Kontaki. And for the sake of colonialism and Rome... They Latinized the word to the Candaces, but I am going to do my best to tell the story in the original language, which was the 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 Kontaki. There are several other ways to pronounce the word, but that was seemed to be the main one that was used. Now, so I'm, long I'm just going to pause you real quick for my edification. So the original word is Kontaki, but yeah. we have modernized it by we, I the mean... Candaces. The Candaces. The Candaces. Now... Having a black friend who is named Candace, I'm already completely on board with whatever we choose to go with. <laughs> like, Perfect. there will be a soundbite made, and it will be sent to her. And I'll be like, girl, did you realize? Did your parents did do this intentionally? Or was this just, to quote Rob Ro- Bob Ross, a happy accident? You know, I, I think that there is a lot of celebration in the word either direction from all the sources that I looked up. Both terms are used interchangeably. So I do not think that it is disrespectful by any means to call it the Latinized version. I think it's it's still a very celebrated word as it should be because these women were amazing. The term itself originated from their Mioritic language, which is the language of ancient Kush, which I'm sure you knew that, but I didn't. So I was curious to know why it was called that. And as you remember, the region that that encompasses is now Ethiopia, Sudan, and parts of Egypt. So this part, I think, is absolutely wild and why I had to go on further. The term Kontaki refers to the sister of the king, but not like we in the European world would think of the sister of the king. No, in their world, the sister of the king of Ku- in Kush played a crucial role due to the matrilineal succession. So basically, she would bear the next heir, making her a queen mother. But that's not where her power ended. The Kontakis were also known as Nubian warrior queens, like you mentioned, queen regents and ruling queen mothers. So um, they were busy girls. They were not just... Um, sitting there having grapes fed to them with with palm fronds they they were doing business and ruling countries you know okay i'm down for this that's i'm so down for it some of the queens ruled in their own right others ruled with their husbands as equals they were not merely consorts they typically had equal power and sometimes even more they had absolute authority They ruled and were tasked with creating their sons to be the next ruler, and it was not unheard of, and I think this is wild, it was not unheard of for one of them to order a ruling that the king commit suicide in order that he be replaced or even disposed of for a son. Now, okay, you know, having been married, that there have been times where you are like, (laughs) I will end you. I will end you. Right now, friend. Like, this is not the way we make mashed potatoes. I cannot believe you bought chunky peanut butter into this house. Do you know where you <laughs> live, sir? Because it's to you even know this house. Yeah. Now, I'm not yeah, saying that exactly. we would do anything for that minor, but in hindsight, most of the big arguments feel like they are over nothing. But to know, it, like... Well, you know, it's usually the boiling point, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, where it's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. But to know that you could just look and be like... I'm going to need you to opt out. Clock out of life. You're done. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. So they had they had the power to demand that. They farmed. They traded with the Greeks. Like you said, they built pyramids. And some led their armies right into battle. At least 11 of these total boss babes ruled on their own. So, like, no king sitting the throne next to her. I got this. I don't need your help. Way and handle it. And I thought at this point, now that I've kind of given a little little bit of a roundup of what that name meant and what they were, that it would be fun to tell you about a couple of them. So the first one 
Ishantakanti, and she lived between 177 BC and 155 BC. She is the earliest known ruling African queen of ancient Nubia. She was the queen regent of the kingdom of Kush. Um, at the time, the capital was in Meroe or Meroe, depending on how you wish to pronounce it. I heard it several different ways. I, I believe reigned... when you hear people say, like, here's how you're supposed to say it, Meroe. This... Yeah. I That's what I think, too. But I heard several say Meroe. So Meroe makes more sense for my brain. But I didn't. At the end but, of the day, you know. we are two white chicks from the <laughs> East Coast of the U.S. Or West Coast. I don't, even know where, Coast. I don't even know where I am. <laughs> Oh, man, we're point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from, I can't even figure out how to butcher the word California, but I know I could try. <laughs> you know, honestly, like, I, I should be able to blame a drink, but I am stone cold sober, so maybe that's my mistake. Blame that. Blame that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm raw dogging it today, so, you know, here yeah. we are. Oh, you're wild. Completely <laughs> wild, you party animal. <laughs> so... She rules from around 170 to 150 BC. Now, given that we have some idea of her life, we at least know that her her ruling time was between 170 to 155 BC. That's not necessarily her her years of life. I think I said that earlier, but that's not what I meant. Um it's also stated that as queen, she played a significant role in their religion. However, other details of her life remain obscure. I mean, we're we're talking ancient, ancient information and not a lot of abilities to read their text. So, but well, in one correct of me carvings, if I'm wrong, the Sudanese didn't exactly they weren't as good at keeping records as the Egyptians, correct? Um, from what I understand, yes, but the other thing that, that I saw mentioned over and over again is that their, for lack of another word, their hieroglyphics are not as decipherable as, like, say, Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yeah, like the Rosetta Stone maybe didn't have a side with Sudanese hieroglyphics You couldn't on download it? that app, yeah. Okay. I mean, I wasn't that's, thinking that's before the, way... the app, but okay. Well, no, I was mean, like, I was making... You were modernizing it, and I took it too literal. All right. These are things. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for ruining my joke. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that. I'll be here all week. You're a credit to your line. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. So, but one of the interesting things about Chantiquette is that in a carving on a dorsal pillar, she is shown adorned with the insignia of rank on the forehead and a crown similar to the one that would have been worn by reigning kings with the decoration of a sun disc and tall feathers. But in this image, she also appears in this image and others. She also appears in works of art with a smaller man. This man is raising his arm from behind to touch her crown. Some believe that the man standing behind her was possibly the crown prince could have either been her husband or her father but he died before reaching the throne. So it's like indicative of I, I was almost there, mm. but I didn't make it. So you wear the crown. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting because I when I first read that, I took it more as the. She was being crowned by that individual, but historians think it's because he didn't make it to the throne himself. Either way. Her name is engraved as a royal queen in their hieroglyphics and where they find the oldest hieroglyphic inscriptions, which I thought was interesting. Her pyramid in Meroe is one of the largest built by the kings of Kush, and it features a unique chapel which contains two rooms and two columns. Landscapes in the chapel depict military campaigns to the south and show large numbers of livestock and prisoners. This is so interesting to me. The queen's landscapes appear in the form of a, quote, huge obese woman. All the Meroe queens had similar forms, which is sim- which is a symbol not only aesthetically pleasing, but rather an expression of wealth and power. Because they and have I the wonder... ability to have yeah. that extra. I, I, I wanted to say potential energy and borrow the biolog- biological definition of fat, which 
always cracks me up internally when I look down at the scale and I'm like, that's a lot of potential. <laughs> yeah, let's borrow that term and say potential energy. But I wonder, did you see any of that art in, in your looking at the I mean, pyramids? I believe I saw some of it, but I mean, I was also focused on a date a little bit later, you know, because when they invaded north into Egypt and not, you know, south. So, like, I'm fascinated by this. I can't say that I recall large, stocky women as queen, but that doesn't mean I didn't see yeah. it. It just means I didn't retain it, you know? Yeah, I was curious because I did a couple just cursory searches to see if I could find, like, a really good image of that, and I, I must have just missed it. But at the end of the day, I they have to exist somewhere. <laughs> um, so I was curious to see if you had seen them because I have not. So then we have Amunrinius, and she is possibly the most well-known queen of the Kush kingdom. She ruled from roughly 40 BC to 10 BC. Um, we even have sort of an idea that she was born around the 60s BC. There are some that believe that it was between the 60s and the 50s, but given that her soul, her son, given that her son was old enough to fight at her side in war, my guess would be closer to the 60s. That would put her in her 20s and him, you know, at least him in his early teens and her maybe in her late 30s, early 40s is what my thought was. But, like, I don't have an idea as far as life expectancy at this time. So I should have I should have seen if we had that kind of information. But regardless, they know that she ruled between 40 and 10 B.C. When her husband, the emperor... Terraquetes died in battle. Queen Amorinius took over and ruled her people, quote, diligently. Diligently. Now, given that the kingdom of Kush was ruled by a dynasty of women, her takeover as a sole ruler was a super easy transition for them. Like, they didn't bat an eyelash at it. Of course she's queen. That makes sense. She, she can handle it on her own. She doesn't need a regent. She doesn't need to be the regent. She's got this, right? And I thought that was so cool and markedly oh, different than what we do. Like, right? literally all European history, women have had to rule as regent or come up with some backhanded way to claim that they're basically a dude, you know? Yeah, like, and I thought, yeah, like, my brain was like, yes, girls, get it. <laughs> I was so proud of them. Why couldn't we learn? The patriarchy. Mm, thanks, Ron. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... And I think this is why history is important. This is why it's important to like learn all of history so we can understand what paradigms need to be smashed. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. What works, what doesn't work, what we should do again, what we shouldn't do again. And I'm I'm here for that. So she would be forever marked as being the queen Rome couldn't conquer. She was wounded in battle and either blinded in one eye or at the very least scarred significantly, so much so that the Roman historian Strabo describes Amerinius as, quote, a, mus a musculine woman, or excuse me, a musculine woman with one eye destroyed. And I think that's fabulous. I have this image of her with a eye patch. I don't think that's accurate, but that's the I mean, image that I have. You know, you say that, and there was the pictures in my brain and I'm going to have struggle to find it online, but there was a picture of a archeologist or archeological dig of a priestess with a golden eyeball. Yes. Do you know what yes, I'm talking I about? That. Yeah. Okay. And just, you know, like that's kind of what I'm imagining that she's got yeah. some substitute. There. I mean, she's a freaking queen. She can put whatever she wants there. And, um, at this particular juncture in history, Kush is gold rich. Yeah, that's like, why Egypt took it over. Right. That's why they decided to do a little colonizing on the side. Um, so it, I wouldn't put it past her to have some type of decorated jewel, gold at the very least in there. But unfortunately, we don't have a clear picture of what that looked like, just simply that she had one eye destroyed. Either way, I think she's badass and I'm here for it. So she figures after the defeat of Cleopatra and Mark Antony that Cush was next on the Roman list to conquest. And um, so she decides to strike the Romans while they're otherwise distracted. 
she helps launch the initial attack in Egypt, where, or excuse me, while Elias Gylus, the Roman prefect of Egypt, was away from the country. So, like, strike him while they're down. I like this. Me too. Amarinius and her son, Akinadad, successfully defeat the Roman forces in both Syene and Philia. So this, this, like, this queen, she literally went into battle alongside her son and not just to watch from the sideline. Like, she led her armies and fought alongside them as well. And I think that is so badass. Like, we don't, she is not up on the ridge watching. She is in the thick of them with them, which is how she lost her eye. And I'm here for it. Totally here for it. After returning to Kush with an array of the spoils of war, which included a bronze statue of Emperor Augustus, she buried the head under the entranceway of her palace so everyone could walk over the enemy. Oh, damn. <laughs> like, is okay. that not the pettiest thing ever? Oh, I am here for that. Right? Later I would that be year, like though... taking the flag and putting it next to the, the commode to use in strips when you need to wipe yourself. The exact same vibe. Yeah, you're absolutely right. However, Kush was driven out of Serene by the new Roman prefect because obviously the former Roman prefect didn't work out so great and got uh, dismissed from his post. And um, eventually the kingdom of Kush would be invaded by Roman forces, which, which advanced far enough in to reach Napata. And at this point, Amarinius would order a counterattack with brutal tactics. According to some of the carvings found, it's believed she fed her captives to her pet lions. In other news, had she had elephants. pet lions. And war elephants. Okay, so her menagerie was a bit intense. She had a collection, if you will. I am always for war elephants. I think we established that in in a previous episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, when yeah, the she... British invaded um, another African country and they ended up kidding, kidnapping Prince Detachu. That's right. It was that episode. Yeah. So I got it. I got the kid's name wrong, and that's gonna that's gonna haunt me. But anyhow, go on. We do you need to pause while we? Go no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I just know that the so, British still have his bones, and it upsets me. I agree with that. They don't deserve his bones. Anyway, unfortunately, the Kushites were prevented from we from retaking some of their cities, um, which the Romans had taken during their invasions. So negotiations for peace began, and peace was achieved right around 21-20 BC, with it being favorable to the Kush, including oh. one of their cities, Quasar Ibrim, having been given back to them, and the taxation going away. Amarinus's kingdom was too powerful for Rome to continue to battle. She maintained her people's independence for another 400 years. Hot damn. I know, right? So there's this story, like little anecdote legend, if you will, that um, when an envoy met with Rome, <laughs> oh, this makes me so happy. When an envoy met with Rome, it goes like this. The Kushite envoy to Rome took a message from the Candace, or the Kantaki, and in his hands were a bundle of golden arrows. And he holds them out to the Roman envoy and says, this gift is from the Candace. If you want peace, this is a token of her warmth and friendship. If you want war, keep the arrows. You're going to need them. Oh, damn. <laughs> and I'm just saying... I feel like that is sincerely the uh, pinnacle of confidence. Now, you said I... they were golden arrows? Yeah. A okay. bundle of golden arrows. I now want golden arrow earrings. I, yeah, I have wanted them for years for a completely different reason. And I'm just adding this to the list of why everybody, every girl should have some. Yeah. Because you're gonna need them. And that just screams to me someone who is so over the other guy's BS and so confident in her own self and her own troops. Like, it's just, it's so impressive. And I'm here for it. So you I know, do have... Yeah, confidence is sexy. 
It truly is in any in any form, right? I do have a couple of images. They're not a ton, but they are fun. I'll share them with you. So the um the bust that you see there is supposed to be of Amarinius. Okay, so she's showing me the... an alabaster bust of you would assume Egyptian. It's like Egyptian almost. Yep. Like there's something off. Like it's Egyptian like Egyptian, Egyptian fan art. And then knowing almost, that it's Sudanese, yeah. you're like, oh, okay. So there's just a little different flair. Um, the eyes are not there. So I'm assuming they could have been made out of a different material that just didn't age well, or it was a mask. I think, um, I believe this one might have been a mask. Um, but you, yeah, I mean, you're correct in calling it fan art because the Sudanese were. I mean, I won't say fan art. Like I, I say it would look like fan art if you looked at it. But like, I guess the reason why I, I want to correct myself and backpedal out of that is Sudan is a different country. They have a different, yes. like they were heavily influenced by Egyptian culture and mythology. Um, and like the black pharaohs were known to be, you know, more Egyptian than Egyptian sort of deal. Um, yes. But they themselves had a unique spin, much like. I mean, the U.S. is massive, right? But you look at, like, Texans are Americans, but they are very different than, say, Californians. That doesn't mean right. they're less American. It just means that they do it a little differently. And I wouldn't right. say and that they are a fan art of the other. Like, so basically, I'm trying to backpedal out of it. I know. I think you're right. Um, I was. I fan art isn't the isn't the right word, and you're correct about that. But what I think is interesting about their time with a connection to Egypt is that when most countries are, for lack of a better word, colonized, they don't always take on the characteristics of those people. Yeah. And in this case, um, the Kush did. They they intertwined both of their stories together beautifully. So fan art, you're right. That's not the right word, but um, I guess homogenizing. What Maybe if we just say right influence? Word? You know, like because yeah, you influence, look, yeah. influence, right? Like, yeah. I'm just gonna stop with my comparison. I'm gonna drop my shovel and quit digging the hole. <laughs> well, um, so I also thought it would be fun to include the map, so you could kind of see. Um, you know, you have Egypt up here, and I love yep. that it includes this is as Roman Egypt <laughs> because by this point, Cleopatra and Mark Antony had been taken over. Um, and then you have down here, you have Kush, and you so can see basically the Tropic of Cancer, unbeknownst to the Kushites and the Romans, is what separated the two versions or the two kingdoms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really interesting that their capital city of Mirwe is all the way down here at the bottom. But the cities they were trying to get back were um, the Quasar Abrim up here. That's a significant amount of miles away. And I thought that was really interesting to include. And and to remember also that the the Sudanese of today and more so the... Um, Kushites of the time, their their lifeblood comes from the Nile as well. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting to fully understand that. Because when you think of the Nile, you don't think of anything else but Egypt, at least for me. No, and same. I thought it was really interesting, right? That here we are. No, this this fed and cared for so many people for so long. And I just think that's so interesting. So um, all that to say, the con... Takai, excuse me, the, the Kantaki and the or the Candaces of Kush often thought of a land never truly ruled by a male. The title of the Candace lasted for 594 years. Whoa. Mm -hmm. How are we just hearing um, about this? That's know, a very right? white girl statement to make. Like the fact that it didn't it exist until we learned. But it is not told in our history books, right? Like it's not. It's maybe told... It's maybe told orally um, 
in in the communities that are fortunate enough to hear it but it's not told globally like you would expect a history class to be taught like you rarely hear of it and it makes me so sad and equally mad because their history is so rich and so nuanced and so fascinating and we're just now like kind of starting to understand it how many documentaries have i watched about anthony and cleopatra and how many did you stumble across when you were trying to find anything about the the kentucky one <laughs> um i found one document well one episode of unearthed talked about the quote-unquote black pharaohs um and their pyramids and then when I wanted to specifically look for the individual women, I found a couple of really well-made YouTube videos um, on the shoulders of giants was one. And I think that, for one, to shout out to the individuals who made those videos, they put in a lot of hard work, a lot of research, and a lot of great computer animation to help bring those stories to life. And I hope they keep doing it because they have some fascinating information to share. So spread the word. Well, and I, to give them some grace, right? Like not them, the documentary makers, but to everybody else, like I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it's kind of hard to share history from a place we can't actively explore and do dig yes. that because of civil unrest. So yes. I'm sure I, maybe you, that has a. I would, I think you're probably 100% right about that. And we can only hope that if there is ever a chance to really get to explore the area that it's still safeguarded enough to to learn about it as opposed to you know what we see often when there's global unrest or just um location unrest those those temples and those sanctuaries get destroyed i hope they're maintained so let us hope that that is not something that happens here and i hope they're explored and documented by archaeologists of sudanese descent not the yeah. British mm -hmm. Museum. I yeah, could not agree with you more. And I don't know if you mentioned this when you did when you did your episode on the pyramids, but I found this excuse me so interesting. Their pyramids were painted. Were they like? Yeah, I don't like think not I knew just, that. Not just one color, but they in the unearthed documentary they talk about having found like color pigments, and one of them was at at least one of them was like a bright red color and had paintings of the um, occupant on the oh, outside. On the outside? Like star, yeah, along with like star textile designs. On more than one pyramid, they're able, so far, they're able to, to tell us that information. And I thought that was so fascinating because we know, you know, in Egyptian culture, we know they have some, you know, really vibrant, brilliant, works on the insides of the pyramids right but to hear that in kush it was on the outside also i was like wait i need i need recreation stat i need to see what this looks yeah. like yeah <laughs> so so that's my that's my story on the kontakis holy cow i am so thanks so for just giving me an offhand comment <laughs> yeah no i mean look this is this is what this podcast is founded on like the offhand comments that in books and movies and documentaries that make you go wait 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 go back one go back one and then cause you right. to like fixate you know like that's what i'm here for oh and you don't even like i literally asked you this i think after we're done recording if you could spell the word so i could put it in my phone because i needed more information right then and there so yeah there's this me. this has been a happy so rob i regret nothing <laughs> And do you it, need a glass eye? I don't want a glass one. I want a gold one. You know, like Me too. I if I have to lose an eye, I want it to be fearfully and wonderfully replaced. Okay. I'm here for you know? it. Yeah. Like I want to be able to look at somebody and be like, God might have made me fearfully and wonderfully my mother's womb, but this eye was fearfully and wonderfully done by a goldsmith. In the caves of Moria. <laughs> Damn, that just got dark and hard. I love it. Okay. Um, you know, I'm always up for an elf or, a, excuse me, a dwarf making some jewelry, you know? I'm up I, for elven jewelry, too, now that I yeah, say you know, that. Yeah, you know, that's fair. So I'm going to I'm gonna hard segue this. 
Okay. All right. We're great um, at hard segues this week. That just stalled my brain. Um, but anyhow, so you, Sorry. <laughs> you took us to Africa to talk to us about Black history. I'm going to bring it back to the U.S. Okay. And I'm going to tell you the story of Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Crumpler? Crumpler. Okay. Making sure yeah, I heard you, that You right. did hear that. Um, I really only use two sources because every other source but the two I mentioned pretty much give you the same regurgitated facts and it was pathetic and so i did the smart thing and excluded all the facts that everybody else has and i'm telling you a bunch of other stuff oh so you know there's that um, my sources are the book twice as hard the stories of black women who fought to become physicians from the civil war to the 21st century by jasmine brown the New England Journal of Medicine article to mitigate the afflictions of the human race, the legacy of Dr. Rebecca Crumpler by Perry Class, MD. And, you know, I basically went, I went a little scholarly with this and it was fun and I appreciate it and I regret nothing. Um, do you know anything about I'm proud to know you? Do you know anything about her? Rebecca Lee Crumpler? I, I, I don't. That's why okay. I asked if I heard her name right. It doesn't That's ring her. a bell to me at all. Cool. So Rebecca, she's born Rebecca Davis. She's born free in Christiana, Delaware on February 8th, 1831. And in Get my it, brain, it's easy for us to, or for me, I'm going to speak for me only, to think about the North and the South being separated along the, the, the ideological lines of slavery being right or wrong, depending on the latitude that you live by. Um, Unfortunately, this wasn't really the case. It was a lot more complex and nuance and gross. Um, she's born in 1831. In 1834, white Americans afraid of racial equity inside a three-day riot in New York City. Oh, no. I, and I that's, that's a gross thing. And so there's going to be a lot of these like, hey, gross things are happening here. And just to kind of flesh out the story, gross things happen here. But I feel like we need to know that to get a full understanding of what is happening in the background, because it's easy to zoom in so close on the main character that you lose perspective of the current events of her world. And that's why we're here to tell the history that's not. Yeah. Um, so as 1834, there's a three day riot kicking off in New York. It's it's easy to kind of like recognize that women are also having a tough time. Um, you know, because we don't get the like vote just until women in general, twenty, yeah, women in general, you know, kind of are you know being oppressed. But uh, at least you know if if you were a white woman, you at least had that going for you, right? Um, but she is a black woman, so she's under two oppressive classes there. So yay. Well, uh, Rebecca's raised by her aunt, and historians believe her aunt is likely an herbalist. So as Rebecca's growing up, she sees countless people filing through her own. And after visiting her aunt, you know, they come in, they're feeling sick, they're upset, but they leave with at least hope, with at least a path forward, at least an understanding of how they're going to proceed. And that sparks a passion within Rebecca. And she ends up studying at West Newton English and Classical School just out of Boston, we don't have her records. Her records are lost to time, but apparently this is a, a fairly prestigious school. After graduating, she moves to Charleston, Massachusetts in 1852, and she starts working as a nurse. Okay. So automatically, this is this is her really working on herself. Now, to receive medical training, most American physicians, they work as apprentices to practicing doctors. The only schools at the time um, that are offering lectures to augment these apprenticeships are the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, and Dartmouth. That's it. Okay. Now, nearly all doctors at this time are white men. Many schools flat out refuse to teach women regardless of their ethnicity. That the, checks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The book Twice as Hard tells stories of some black men who went all the way to Edinburgh to get educated as doctors. 
but those schools wouldn't admit ladies either. The ones in Edinburgh? Yeah. Okay. That, that also checks. Right? So meanwhile, Rebecca's working as a nurse, and she picks up some physician mentors who suggest that she tries to attend more progressive colleges. At this point, none of the historically black colleges have medical programs. Like, because you're thinking, like, when I was reading, I was like, oh, Howard. It's like, no, they didn't. They didn't have a medical school yet. And so the only real shot she has is attempting the women's medical college. And so at this time, the the book, go ahead. I was just in my brain. I thought if the women can't, regardless of ethnicity, can't study in the men's colleges, do they have their own? They have a women's so, college. Yeah. And surprisingly, okay. in a previous episode, I brought up the women's college she goes to. Um, do you remember Ananda Bai Josie? The okay, Indian I wondered woman. if we were going to have a connection. Yeah, yeah, we are. Okay, okay so Ananda Bai, she ends up earning an internship at this college, but I don't think she attends there. Um, and now that I say that a lot, I could be wrong. But anyhow, that was that was the crossover from a previous episode. So we're we're killing it with crossovers, today. aren't we? We're just we're just making sure that you know to call back to previous ones to give people a reason to go back and listen again or listen for the first yeah. time. You know, understand that you know history overlaps. So at this time, there's 54,543 physicians in the U.S. If you had to guess, how many are women? Six. Okay, you're, you're, you're much more conservative. It's only 300. Oh, that's and way better than I thought. Zero of them are black, but 300 out of over 54,000. So that's so that's great. Fifty-four thousand doctors bringing babies into this world, and only three hundred of them are women. Yeah, yeah, that's infuriating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, considering how many times do you choose your doctor based by their gender because you just don't want to deal with the uncomfortability of dropping your drawers for somebody that might be attracted to your parts and your bloomers. <laughs> bloomers is the more gender appropriate term as opposed to me just going with drawers drawers yeah, and drows. i don't even i don't even know how many r's i put into that word but here we are like six at least right <laughs> um rebecca was accepted to new england female medical college in 1860 so the school had been open for 25 years and by the time she was admitted she was their first black student period wow okay and she's 30 by this point about yeah and it's during her schooling that she lived with the threat of violence over her head. Of course. Now, because history doesn't happen inside a vacuum, right? Her story doesn't exist without the rest of the world filling in. Abraham Lincoln is elected to presidency during her first year of college. At this time, he's only talking about halting the expansion of slavery. He's not talking about ending it abolitionists are the ones with the high hopes of ending it all together. Right. And it's, you Cash hear that, play. you, yeah, you, you understand it, but until it's spoken, you, oh, that's right. You know what I mean? Like you and I are not right. civil war scholars. We have more things in our brain than just this. And, you know, the pool of our knowledge is wide, not deep. So that's why I bring this all back <laughs> up. At this time, it's not, uncommon for black people to be abducted and sent into slavery believing that they are runaway slaves whether or not they are born free that checks it sucks um and then one day in december 1960 boston abolitionists 1860 i am afraid to know what i said i'm, I'm gonna hear it when i when i edit this and i'm gonna be appalled so <laughs> thank you for keeping me chronologically on track all right, so uh, one day in December of 1860, Boston abolitionists hold a public meeting. Because this is the heavy hitters, Frederick Douglass is speaking there. Yes. And that's okay. when protesters show up. Of course. There's so many protesters that enter the hall, they outnumber the abolitionists. And wow. I know that it gets grosser. It gets grosser. So as Douglas is delivering his speech, he's actually pulled off the stage by white supremacists. And violence erupts in the hall, as you as you would expect. 
And because history is cyclical and we just, you know, like this could be a segment on some polarizing news program, I'm not going to name names, police are said to have watched these events unfold. Now, eventually, okay. police remove the abolitionists from the hall and they allow the white supremacists to continue holding the event. I don't feel like the the white supremacists were holding an event. They were interrupting an event. You know, uh, it, funny, funny you would say that. But um, yeah, uh, <laughs> these are things. These are things. It's their event now. Yeah. And so Douglas and the abolitionists, they regroup two miles away from Rebecca's school and they continue on with their event. It's at this time police keep the white supremacists out and allow the abolitionists to continue to speak. So progress, question mark. And I say question mark Ish. because as the event goes on, a mob of angry white men, some well-dressed from high-paying jobs, fill the streets. Many are armed with axes and clubs and some have guns. And for whatever reason, being armed with an axe felt the most brutal to me. Yeah, no, I don't think you're wrong. So, um, just like you'd imagine, violence erupts again. And this time it, it spills over as the mob of angry white men rip through a nearby black neighborhood. Their goal is to destroy all of the comforts of these black people. And so they're breaking windows, they're destroying furniture. They get on a trolley and drag off black passengers and beat them. Basically, they're berserking. Yeah. And when police are notified of the violence, they don't stop the rioting. And records show that there's only one arrest during this time, and it's of a black boy defending himself when a white man breaks into his home and assaults him. <laughs> of course, if the roles are reversed, we would see a very different outcome. Yeah. Um, it makes me so mad. We don't know how close Rebecca was to this violence, if she attended the event, if she knew people at the event that suffered a direct consequence. But given her proximity, it's very unlikely she was not affected. Like, I can't imagine you would experience right. that or be in that same town and not have a very visceral response. Yeah. So given that she's highly traumatized by just this occurring, by being alive, by having this constant threat over her, she does the very human thing, focuses on her self-help, and she takes some time off school, and she relocates temporarily to Richmond, Virginia. And despite the violence that erupted and that being the reason that she takes time off school, the school responds by stripping her of her scholarships. Of course. And I can't imagine that events would be any different today. Yeah, no, I don't think we've changed in that area. No. And after taking a break, coming back, Rebecca goes back to school despite the lack of scholarships, and she feverishly seeks alternate funding as a way to, you know, to get through life. And she ends up receiving the Wade scholarship that was established by the abolitionist Benjamin Wade, which I oh. thought was extremely exciting. Um, yeah. The civil war is raging and Rebecca is getting focused on her education. Good for her. And I mean, I, I felt like stating that the civil war is just actively going on because it's very easy to hold those two as very separate stories. Yeah. It's another two years before Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. In 64, she graduates from medical school with the degree Doctress of Medicine. Okay. Because, I mean, we had to gender everything. It's, yeah, we I sure mean, did. it's Doctress and not Doctrex, like Aviatrex, but. I'll go with it. Okay. I was hoping for, you know, the X because for whatever reason, the X just sounds so much cooler. Um, it does. So despite slavery coming to a halt, she's still suffering surprise from racism and misogyny. What? Now, I know, you right? Know. Like you didn't like those things just didn't evaporate at the year 1900. Oh, 
I thought you know? they did. I wouldn't that be wouldn't yeah, I mean no here we are place. <laughs> so she meets and marries a dude named Arthur Crumpler, and the two move back to Richmond, Virginia, and they serve with the Freedmen's Bureau. Basically, this is a government sanctioned group that worked to help the four million newly freed black people, and most of them have never had access to proper medical care. And now there's a black okay. doctor. So she's so, busy. Yeah, she's got quite a bit to do. Now, regardless of what many people claimed about wanting to help these newly freed black people, she's she's facing a lot of uphill battles. Um, I'm going to start calling her Crumpler from now on because, you know, she's married, so her last name doesn't change. And I, I want to give her the same respect that I would give to a dude by referring to them as their last name and not first. Mm -hmm. um, Crumpler faces a, a crap ton of pushback. Hospital administrators refuse to admit her patients. And that part made me angry. One thing you'll hear about and you'll read about when you read about her is pharmacists refuse to fill her prescriptions. Of course. Because they don't believe a woman, let alone a black woman, could have the education. So why should they fill it? And yeah, of course. Many records indicate that male physicians claim that the MD in her title stands for mule driver and not medical oh, I'd doctor. Be so mad. I'd be mm -hmm. so mad. So despite this, we have her words in response to this experience. She says, she okay. describes this as a proper field for real missionary work and one that would present ample opportunities to become acquainted with the diseases of women and children. During my stay there, every hour was improved in that sphere of labor. Like she is just going high. It doesn't matter what you do. She is She's, relentless. She is going to just remain better than you and above reproach. Which I'm thankful she did because I would have been like the Candace who buried the head of the statue underneath <laughs> the, the threshold. You know, like that would have been my, I would have gone petty. I mean, you made a point though. <laughs> you know, yeah. And ultimately she did, we remember her for her work. And so I think that's probably best, right? Yeah. In... 1869, the Crumplers moved back to Boston in the same neighborhood that was destroyed in the previous riot that I told you about. Oh, my. Okay. Just a few years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dr. Crumpler works out of her home, and the community is filing through her doors like they had for her aunt during her childhood. Mm. And regardless of whether the patients could pay or not, Dr. Crumpler treats them. As medicine should be. Right? So in 1880, Dr. Crumpler moves to Hyde Park in Boston. And records are kind of hazy here. We're unsure if she continues practicing medicine in the traditional sense, but she does something incredible. She publishes a book, a book titled A Book of Medical Discourses in Two Parts. It takes her experience as a nurse and a doctor with over two decades of experience and provides practical advice to women. It includes everything, taking care of advice or taking care of infants, proper nutrition, treating burns. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah. I would like to read this book. It is. You can still buy it. It's on Amazon. Like I looked. That's awesome. <laughs> now, one quote from her book. People do not wish to feel that death ensures through neglect on their part. Crumpler writes, so they speak of consumption, of cholera and phantom, of diphtheria, etc., as if sent by God to destroy infants. But in her view, there is no doubt that thousands of little ones die annually at our very doors from diseases which could have been prevented or cut short by timely aid. Get it. She's now, so smart. I'm here for it. This is happening, like she's writing this before we fully established and latched onto germ theory. Yeah. She knows and, what's up. Yeah, like she's thinking like, okay, it's likely the mold or the mildew from basements or bad air or miasma or whatever you want to call it. But she's like, okay, whatever it is, we can treat it, we can fix it, we can make it better. Get it. I love that for her. I yep. love that for us. 
It is the only known medical book published by a black woman in the 19th century, period. Period. Wow. Okay. Dr. Rebecca Crumpler dies 12 years later on March 9th, 1895. And this part really bums me out. We have no existing photographs of her to this day. Mm. Now, when you search her, and this is something that Dr. Ja or author Jasmine Brown notes, you see an image of, quote, her online everywhere. That image belongs to Mary Eliza Mahoney, the first trained black nurse in the U.S. Okay. And it was misattributed to also being Rebecca Crumpler. Now, it's sad that we have very few sources that confirm her existence. I mean, like her school records, gone, right? She is the first black woman that became a doctor. And that fact is often misattributed to a woman named Dr. Rebecca Cole. But without this, despite her slipping through history, we have her two-volume book, which in and of itself is an absolute milestone. And thanks to the advocacy of Victoria Gall and the Friends of Hyde Park Library, a monument was set up at her grave at the Fairview Cemetery in Hyde Park in Boston in July of 2020, where Dr. Joan Reed, the first Black female dean at Harvard Medical School, spoke at the ceremony. That's so cool. And I went through and I found, when I told you that she worked out of her house, mm -hmm. her house still stands. Oh, that's awesome. So that is her house at 67 Joy Street. How cool. And it's just this little nondescript house in brick a very building. brick. Yeah. Yeah. Attached to all like brick on brick on brick attached to more brick. Mm -hmm. This that's a Californian's nightmare right there. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. But that's yeah. the story of Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. I'm so proud of her. Like, way to handle everything above reproach, be an amazing human being, go through all it took to become a doctor, and then treat people regardless. And I imagine she she treated, you know, had anybody walked to her door, she would have treated them regardless of ethnicity or situation, right? Like, that's what yeah. I'm picturing of her. I mean, I, I have nothing to disprove you, so I won't, yeah. you know. <laughs> I feel like people that have her kind of tenacity and her, even even just in her quotes, I feel like people like that they're there for the good of, of all mankind, not just themselves. Right. Right. I wish we knew her. She, she does have Ugh. a very different feel than so many people I present, right? Like, I typically bring <laughs> the gritty, the, you know, the, the, the petty, and she's just this... I mean, I'm sure she swore. I'm sure she had a bad day. I'm sure she, you know, wished ill oh, we from all time do, to time. Right? Like, but I couldn't find any evidence. So, saint, right? I mean, that's how I'm seeing it. Do, did she have children? Do you know? Good question. I don't know. I'd just be. I'd be so curious to know if we have some descendants that can that celebrate her. Oh, I mean, if that's the case, then I feel like we might have at least recorded pictures because yeah, it'd be, this was your great, true. great, great grandma. This was, you know, and, and maybe we do. And I just, I didn't, I didn't figure that out. I don't know. Well, I mean, mass photography was at least in the U S was just, we have pictures from the civil war, right. But on a, on a level where everybody had photographs, even in 1895, that would have been, still a luxury right right yeah it wasn't yeah we didn't have the olin mills going through everybody's church taking pictures of the directory you know <laughs> oh man the church directory everybody's got one so many pearls so many pearls <laughs> i love it but oh, yeah fun if you have 
are wondering when you can don your pearl necklace and show up and listen to the next podcast, the answer is next week. And we're here for it. You can rate, review, subscribe, and let your local pearl stringer know about us and that we've mentioned them. We think they're amazing. And on that note, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.